Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Uh, we're back again this afternoon with our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. We are interviewing Dr. Andy Gonzalez. She's out of the heart of Texas, down in the Rio Grande Valley. We're very excited to have her with us. And before we get to her bio, I want to acknowledge and thank today's sponsor for this podcast. Uh, Molina Law Group is a local immigration law practice stationed here in Springfield, Oregon. They have satellite offices in Beaverton, Oregon and Cottage Grove, Oregon. Molina Law Group can service uh, any any area of immigration law you and your family or friends or loved ones could have, your neighbors can have, student visa, work permit, citizenship, residency, and they are now beginning their citizenship classes, excuse me, citizenship classes in both English and Spanish. So they are very busy and wanting to help uh, those that uh, are interested and have needs in this area. You can find Molina Law Group on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. Their phone number is 541-653-8899. And I'm going to begin by reading Dr. Gonzalez's bio. Dr. Andy Lee Gonzalez is a native to South Texas. She was, she was raised in Palmville, Texas, and graduated from La Jolla High School. As a first-generation Latina college student, she was accepted to Michigan State University through the College Assistant Migrant Program, or CAMP, where she received her Bachelor's of Science in, di- in Dietetics. Did I say that correctly, Dr. Yes. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Uh, she then completed her 11th month dietetic internship rotation program and her master's in public health with an emphasis in nutrition and migrant health from Michigan State University College of Human, Human Medicine. As a camp graduate assistant, she helped mentor and advise incoming freshmen. Her graduate research focused on nutrition in partnership with the Telemon migrant, uh, Telemon? Yep. Migrant. Head Start and Traverse City Farm Workers Clinic, which helped co-author two articles on migrant health. Uh, She then completed her doctorate in philosophy and organizational leadership studies from Our Lady of the Lake University in 2018 and 2019 completed a certificate in business analytics from Michigan State University. She is currently training as a certified specialist in obesity and weight management. Through her experiences, Andy has developed a strong purpose and passion for public health, community, and nutrition. She is a student at heart. She has found that working toward improving the community's health and well-being is an incredibly fulfilling responsibility and goal of hers. Andy's background encompasses a range of diverse experiences from academia, research, community, working with diverse populations, serving in AmeriCorps, management experience and clinical nutrition services are just a few. She is a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, serves in the executive board for the Latinos and Hispanics in Dietetics and Nutrition Group, serves as a delegate for the Texas Academy of Nutrition, a liaison for the Rio Grande Valley Dietitians Chapter, and executive board member for the Rio Grande Valley Diabetes Association, co-chair for Unidos Contra la Diabetes, and a member to La Jolla Catholic Daughters of the American, to the Americas, and a few roles she serves to support her purpose in advocating health in, and education in our community. Dr. Andy Lee Gonzalez current careers with HEB Nutrition Services, where she started seven years ago, 
as a regional licensed dietitian for the board region in South Texas, border region in South Texas. She now serves as a sales representative for HEB Nutrition Services. As a sales representative, she builds on HEB's nutrition services offerings, maintains relationships with physicians, healthcare providers, and employers, and serves as a spokesperson for nutrition education and health and wellness for the border and Gulf Coast region in Texas. In her spare time, her joy is spending time with her husband, Ricardo. <laughs> daughter, how do you say your daughter's name? Aulani. Aulani and son Arturo and extended family. Hobbies include spending time outdoors and helping her daughter with her FFA, animals and 4-H projects. She's a highly motivated Latina who <laughs> values family, hard work and serving others. Dr. Andy Lee Gonzalez, welcome to Molina Leadership Solutions, a year-long series, Women in Leadership. How, how are you doing today? How are things down in South Texas? Thank you, Mark. Uh, down here in South Texas, pretty hot. <laughs> pretty hot. Yeah, we're, we're getting into summer, so it's it's pretty hot. But overall, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm. It's such an honor just to be able to chat with you this afternoon, and I'm you know I'm humbled by the opportunity just to chat with you. Well, I'm I'm, I'm equally humbled to have you here participating in this program. Mm -hmm. One of the things we wanted to do is highlight women in all vocations, backgrounds educational pursuits, endeavors, accomplishments, achievements, and help paint a tapestry of what women are able are able and capable of doing with their lives. You have an amazing biography. You have been highly motivated, highly attentive in not just the educational process for the sake of educational pursuit, but your educational endeavors have been to bring about change, to bring about impact, and to bring about uh, overall cultural shifts in the community in which you live. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's part of, of my passion and my purpose. And I hope to continue to do that every day, you know, striving for that every day. And for those that are logging, who are listening and who are not from Texas, I'm a Texas boy. I grew up there and I lived in the Rio Grande Valley where Dr. Gonzalez lives now from 2010 to 2016. And yes, it's that time of year where it's starting to get really hot. HEB is a food, a grocery store food chain all over Texas. And it stands for Henry E. Butts. That was the original founder of HEB. And I just wanted to put that out there so when people hear HEB uh, mentioned, they'll understand it's a very large a corporate grocery store chain there in in Texas itself. Now, let's go back in time, Dr. Gonzalez. I want to go, I, I, I have sent you some questions, but I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the other uh, areas of your childhood. What yes. interested you in this area of education and service? Yeah, so I, as far as education, you know, that was something that was instilled on me early on with my father, my late father who passed away in 2019, uh, that was, or 2009, I'm sorry. Um, he always strived for us to kind of, you know, use that as a ticket to be able to break some of the, the, the barriers that we in our community have faced with over time. And so for him, that was our opportunity just to, to be better, right? And to do better for our loved ones, for our community. And so that was early on kind of instilled in me um, as far as like my career in dietetics and public health and nutrition that actually stemmed, you know, through my encounters, my interactions with my family, 
I saw early on the impact that diabetes had with my loved ones, uh, specifically my grandmother and my godmother. I, I saw the impact that it had, that food had on their health. And I knew when I was in college, when I found out about the profession, I'm like, I need to do that. There's not enough Latinas in the field. I need to be that voice, you know, that that bridge when it comes to providing that nutrition literacy. And I knew that from that day on that I would do everything in my power to make that happen. Um, and really, you know, again, just really being able to support my community in a way that would really impact their overall quality of life and, um, you know, the, the way that they, you know, interact with their loved ones and whatnot. So I think that in itself was like my purpose, my drive, and it's something that I don't take for granted. Now, nutrition literacy is important because I grew up in Texas, youngest of seven kids, and we didn't have a lot of money, but we ate a lot of beans and tortillas and rice and stacks of tortillas that big around the table. We yeah. ate tamales and barbacoa and health, eating healthy was not something that we were taught, was not something we lived, it's not something we learned. We ate a lot of food with masa, heavy foods. Some of it was to fill you up because there wasn't always very much. It was also easy to make large amounts of it. And I still struggle with nutritional literacy. I'm 57 years old and I revert back to uh, my wife says she doesn't like me cooking because she says I cook like a Mexican, you know. Yeah. Mix it all together, beans, tortillas, or uh, chorizo and beans. And I still like to eat like that and with full disclosure in mind. Uh, how, when you came back from school, you came back with your education to help, you came back with this passion and desire to make your community better. What kind of reception did you receive? Thank you for sharing that, though, by the way, because I think that's definitely a struggle that we all face. I mean, I, too, grew up in a very Mexican-American household. I remember, you know, I mentioned my grandmother um, and and they both were very important in my life and my family's life, my siblings life. And I remember that my grandma would, you know, after eating a bowl of rice, she'd come back and serve me another bowl of rice. Right. And so there's, there's other factors that really play into the way that we um, position food. And I think food a lot in our culture is love and it's, it's, it's our way of showing, you know, attention and, you know, care and cariño, you know, and I think that that connection makes it very difficult for a lot of families. And then you talked about another thing, right? Another component, like as far as like, you know, some people call it like food security or nutrition security. I also feel that that too has a huge impact in the way our food patterns are kind of on a day to day, whether it's like how we schedule our meals, how we snack. And because of some of those limiting factors, and that's why we see some of the, the health conditions that we see today, right? Um, I'm a big fan of beans, right? Egg and beans. I mean, I can eat that every day. My mom knows that, you know, and so I think that, you know, the biggest message that I found coming back to go back to your question was just really being able to meet our community halfway, because the last thing that I want to do as a healthcare provider is take away something so special, right? When it comes to food and culture, 
But I think that there's definitely a way that we could continue to educate our community in ways that we could still enjoy those foods, but more, more importantly, focus on how do we, you know, provide education where, you know, we think about portion and frequency, um, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we develop healthy habits, long-term habits. Um, I always say, I don't want to be a food police because <laughs> I think when I first started as a dietitian, Mark, and you probably see that, right? Like you come into the world, you know, all this information and you're like, you think it's going to be like butterflies and, you know, uh, rainbows and, you know, you're going to do all this change and people are going to want to, you know, get on board with you, but it doesn't happen that way. You know, I learned early on that that wasn't going to be the way. And what I found was really, you know, small steps towards big changes, right? Um, tomando, you know, pasos pequeños para lograr cambios grandes. And I, and I'm a firm believer of that. Like, that's something that, you know, I don't get to counsel as much as, as I once did, but, you know, I, I look back and I'm like, you know, the way that I, I really was able to connect with my community was when I was, you know, was able to, to understand where they were coming from, right. Um, be able to understand some of the struggles understand you know how food plays into their their family dynamics and really incorporate some better for you habits and i think that's where i think i've had the most success um whether it's like adding chia seed or flaxseed to your tortilla mix maybe changing from flour to wheat flour you know just just some fun things that really stay true to some of the the things that we enjoy and that that is part of our culture yeah, you have a really tall order. You have a tall order to help change that cultural component of the Latino community, especially where you're you're at down in the valley. Um, because I remember when we, we lived moved to Harlingen, there was a Mexican restaurant on every corner or every half yeah. block. Yeah, restaurants here are pretty successful. <laughs> And it's, I, I was, it was interesting because I was like thinking, man, there's a re Mexican restaurant there and there and there and there, and they were just everywhere. And that's when I realized how much uh, that part of the culture, the, the Mexican American culture was just still so wrapped up in the, and the food was basically all the same. Yeah. You know, it, it may be a different enchilada sauce over here or a different kind of meat on the nachos over here but it was really all the same so you have a tall order to come back to your the, your hometown or the environment in which you grew up and try to introduce positive change um, now how did you when you first came back you just mentioned that briefly but did people think you were crazy <laughs> I think the hardest was probably, you know, it, it always starts first at home, you know, like I remember a time when my dad was still living and, you know, I, I did a simple switch mark from changing his milk from like whole milk to uh 2% milk. And he nearly died. Like, I'm sorry. Like he was like having it, like he was upset. He was yelling, like, how could you change my milk? I think that was like my biggest learning, you know, because I, I, I look back and I'm like, you know, how could I have introduced maybe, you know, this better for you option in a way that was a lot more acceptable. And I think, you know, 
did people think I'm crazy? Do people think I'm crazy still? Probably. I don't think that craziness will, will ever fade just because I, I'm still on this road, this journey of having impact and change and finding opportunities, you know, exploring different spaces when it comes to collective efforts in health. And, and I'll continue to do that, you know, with, with my employer hat on or not, like that's something that drives me every day. I, I want to be part of that change. Um, and, you know, you know, people will, you know, still probably, you know, kind of challenge me in this space, especially because it is so fabricated into our being, our culture. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I think that if we continue to provide that education early on, I think these are habits that could really uh, make an impact in our community. And, you know, oftentimes, and where I saw even as a practitioner, I always started with our little ones. You know, I started um, with our kids and I know I've shared a lot, but like, I remember one time, you know, and, and that was a strategy that I ended up using ongoing was that I would hit mom and dad with, the, with their child, right? Like their child would come in for education, mom and dad, and, and I saw myself in them too, right? I have two kids and oftentimes you'll make sacrifices for your kids first before yourself. And so what I found very powerful was that when I had those little ones inside my class, whether it was a kid's cooking class or, you know, they were, you know, uh, referred by their physician to come visit with me. I take, I tackle that opportunity to have mom, dad, grandma, anybody who wanted to join me in that consult room, right? I'd bring everybody and I wouldn't let anybody out the door, right? And, you know, now with COVID, obviously there's new guidelines, right? But I would let everybody in because I felt like that was my way of trying to change a culture, right? Like have an impact on that culture where, where we need to start early on and maybe through, you know, the, the, you know, the, the child, right. Where we can really have a true impact in the whole family dynamic. Um, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I'm very fortunate to have seen some success and true trailblazing when it comes to just increasing that quality of life. And I, I think that also one of the components of the challenges of, of the work that you do is that food can be such a drug. And it's a legal drug, right? You're not going to get arrested for overeating. You're not going to get arrested for being unhealthy. You're not going to get arrested for eating tortillas when you instead you should be eating some broccoli, right? Yeah. These things are these are legitimate issues that affect the, the the response of the body to the chemicals in the food, the response of the neurological system to chemicals in the food. So. I really see how your position has all the multifacets, multifaceted of challenges because of all the acceptable. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we might people might get some body shaming for being overweight, and I'm not trying to minimize that. Yeah, but there's no emphasis on the the the. But we've normalized it, Mark. Yes. So I know that there's no no shaming. But what I have seen over time is that there's you know this this normal way of thinking when it comes to just weight status, but then also health conditions. So I see the normalization even happening in diabetes. Right, like oh, I have diabetes, but I don't I don't know. Again, this is just my own personal feedback, my own personal opinion as a healthcare provider. 
as a public health servant already for 10 plus years is that there's, there's a shift in even the way that we think about that connection with food to health. And, you know, once you get something like diabetes, I don't, I don't know, you know, if, if people truly see the impact that it has on quality of life until it's too late, right? Like your amputation, your loss of eyesight, you know, um, your nervous system, you know, dialysis, right? Kidney failure. And so, and, and then at that point in time, it's too late, right? As far as, you know, reversing some of those health complications. And so my duty and my social responsibility is really being able to educate before all that happens. And if it is already happening, how do we keep create programs to be able to um, sustain good quality of life with some of those uh, some of those health consequences with those conditions? Well, I graduated high school in New Braunfels in 1982, so that makes me 57. <laughs> in the last 10 years, maybe the amount of people that I grew up with either going to elementary school, middle school, and high school that have died from diabetes is overwhelming. They had toes amputated, feet amputated, legs amputated, lost their sight, all kinds of things. It, it's shocking. I, I, I guess I never really considered a diabetes as something that could touch me in that way. You know, you always said, oh, older people get diabetes. I forget that I'm getting older, but that, that these people that I knew in their 40s or some in their 30s could have such severe diabetic uh, or responses to their diabetes and they're gone now. Yeah. No, I, I saw it too. That's I saw it early on, Mark. I mean, I, I saw it in my grandmother and my godmother, as I mentioned. I think you know, everything, right? Like you, everything that you just shared right now, right? Like I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like my godmother was still very young and she, you know, we called her madrina. She was like my madrina's madrina. So it was like, you know, but you know how it is in our families. And so she was like a second mom to my mom and, you know, she lost her sight. She was on dialysis. She had her leg amputated. Um, you know, she had trouble with her nervous system and, you know, just, you know, all, everything that diabetes could do, she had. And then my grandmother, the same thing, right? And my grandmother didn't have any amputations, but, you know, heart, she had like three strokes, you know, you know, all these different consequences of even just a stroke, but it was attributed to her diabetes that led to some of these other, uh, so it's like secondary, right? These secondary consequences. And so I, I hear you, I, you know, see that every day, you know, I think that's why I mentioned, like, I think there's still a lot of work to do um, when it comes to not only the role of the dietitian, but I always say that even from a public health standpoint, you know, as healthcare providers across the spectrum, right, we, we still have a long way to go in, you know, increasing access to, you know, health, uh, information, education, to ensure that we continue to, um, live a long and prosperous life because <laughs> what's happening is that with those health disparities, we're just cutting our life expectancy shorter by the minute, you know, um, with some of these health challenges that we're facing. And we even saw it marked through COVID mm -hmm. in the Rio Grande Valley. We were hit pretty hard. 
And I'm a firm believer that it has a lot to do with the fact of some of the health disparities that we face down here. I remember when we were lived down there, we lived in Harlingen and um, the Rio Grande Valley of Texas is one of the most, if I remember correctly, one of the most obese, illiterate in the five-star county area. Three of, the five, three of those counties are qualified under the most obese and most illiterate in the state of Texas and the nation, if I remember correctly. That's a, that's a big challenge, Dr. Gonzalez. No, for sure. And they say one in one in three Texans will become diabetic is what the research shows. And I always say here in the Rio Grande Valley, it's more like one in two. Wow. What about, we're gonna, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, yes. I want to ask you another question. You know, you're, you're astute, you're learned, you're accomplished. What is the women that are babies in gestation are now getting diagnosed pre-diabetic. How is that possible? What does that mean? So um, as far as pre-diabetes, like through your pregnancy, as far as gestational diabetes, you know, obviously, you know, there's different factors, but one component of that is usually diet, right? Like how are we, um, you know, you know, fueling our bodies during that time, right? As far as that process. And so oftentimes there's some hormone imbalance. And if you're not, you know, eating a well-balanced diet, then you have a higher risk of developing prediabetes. You know, gestational diabetes um, from the research that I have seen is that, you know, it could be managed throughout your pregnancy, but if it's not managed correctly, you start to have some health consequences or health complications uh, with your, your, your pregnancy, basically. Um, macrosomia is one of them, meaning that your baby will grow pretty quickly, pretty fast and pretty big, right? So oftentimes mom has trouble delivering and labor and, and it's more higher risk for C-section. But then aside from that, if not properly treated and paid attention to, um, it could lead to mom continuing that, like having diabetes even post-pregnancy. So um, it happens uh, quite often in our communities and, you know, there's, there's large organizations like WIC. Um, even I know a few colleagues of mine that are um, OBGYNs that really try to introduce that early education to make sure that, you know, that we address, you know, the risk of gestational diabetes in pregnancy. Well, thank you for answering that and taking the time to go into some detail because I, I'm hearing more and more about this and it's been a little bit shocking thinking, oh my goodness, that I didn't even realize that our nutritional, uh, our nutrition has gotten so bad that <clears throat> either a child could, could be di become diabetic and the mom could be di could become diabetic in the process during the pregnancy. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you were accepted to Michigan State University through the College Assistant Migrant Program. Talk to us for those that don't have any idea what life down and the border is like, or come from a migrant family or come from a migrant community. What is this? What was that like for you? Yeah, so the College Assistant Migrant Program is actually a supportive system that started at Michigan State University. They actually had a recruiter come to our high school um, and, you know, really convinced I always say convince my twin sister. We do come from a migrant farm worker family background, mostly on my mom's side. 
my dad had done farm work early on um, as he was growing up, but you know, then he started working for Coca-Cola. So that kind of stopped. But my mom's side, I always say like the Hinojosa side, Vidal family side of mine, um, really till this day, um, you know, uh, are hardworking or in the fields. You know, I still have some uncles. I think my grandfather just stopped working maybe two years ago, two, three years ago. And um, so it's very much a part of who I am as a person, something that, you know, that I value and I will, you know, hold to till, you know, I'm in another place. I, I, that's something very dear to me and I don't take for granted for sure. Um, as far as like hard work and the, their contribution, farm worker contribution to our food supply, um, our agriculture food system, you know, huge advocate. I, um, you know, grew up learning that and knowing that. And so when this recruiter came to our high school, my twin sister was like, we got to apply, you know, she, wanted to leave out of state. I was a little bit more timid. I didn't want, I didn't think about leaving Texas. I mean, I was top 10% of my class, but I was thinking UT Austin, you know, uh, sticking around close to home, but she really saw as an opportunity. And I always say I, I couldn't have done it alone because she really was kind of a, a huge contributor to, you know, pushing my boundaries and pushing me to be like, Hey, like we should go out of state. And I loved every experience. Uh, Michigan State University has a wonderful program, um, the College of Migrant Program. The director there, Luis Garcia, he's still there. He is so dedicated and devoted to, you know, our Hispanic Latino community as a whole. Because when we went to Michigan State University, it was a culture shock. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were very far away from home, very little diversity. Um, and so when it comes to our Hispanic Latino community, it was, it was something that... Um, you know, we were able to really represent our community and really, um, you know, show that it can be done. And, you know, they helped us along the way. And, you know, as a first generation um, college student, we had a lot of challenges, you know, everything from like knowing how to study, you know, and even just navigating. I always say like that it is so, um, you know, simple to think, but it, it makes such a big impact in the way that you um really address your everyday college experience. And so, you know, that's why I'm wholeheartedly always um, up for mentoring or guiding or coaching upcoming freshmen, upcoming students, because I know the impact that they had on me. Uh, but the college assistant micro program, again, supportive system in any way that you can think from, you know, finding resources for books, finding resources on, you know, how to ace an interview, like simple things that I think really equipped us to not only the college experience, but then after we were done with college, that we were ready for that next step, which was like real world life, right? Like, you know, your professional career and just making sure that we were ready for that. How did your family feel about their twin girls going up to the East Coast just for school? They were not happy. <laughs> My mom had a very difficult time and we are the youngest of like four. So my, my mom was a little devastated. Um, but you know, the great thing is that my dad was very supportive. Like he was like, they need to, you know, they're, they're grown women. They need to, you know, grow up, you know, be independent. And that's something that I really loved about my father is that like when it came to gender, um, 
he, he, I, you know, I always say like, it wasn't really a factor. Like we were, you know, out in the barn, you know, we were, you know, handling our animals. We were in FFA, you know, we did both sports, we did cheer. Like, I think he taught us that, you know, gender shouldn't be a factor in the way that we um, go into life. Right. And so I, you know, I really appreciate that upbringing because um, it helped me be more brave in a lot of situations and be more courageous when it came to, you know, just addressing some of those inequalities. I always felt like, oh, I, I do belong here. You know, like I, you know, there's, you know, and even with, with, with being Latina, you know, being one of the only people of color in my graduating class, I was like, no, I belong here. You know, I'm going to take up space. And I, I really appreciate that. Cause I feel like if I didn't have that early on, I would have struggled a lot more, not to say it wasn't easy, but I would have struggled a lot more. Well, I appreciate you saying that because this is this series is titled Women in Leadership and everything that you just gave credence to because of your father's insistence on your participation, your his insistence that you grow go away, grow up, earn your way, do those things that are going to be required of you. That's a that's a beautiful gift and a lot of people do not have that. No, for sure. And yeah, I I agree. I, I am very fortunate to have a very um, close uh, family uh, tribe um, unit, you know, wherever you want to call. I mean, my tias, my tios, you know, my success is attributed to all of their hard work. They were very much a part of it. Um, I mentioned earlier, first generation, me and my twin were the first to graduate from college. Um, I was the first in my family to go into graduate school, PhD. And I don't want to be the last, but I, I couldn't have done it without their support. Like I knew even in Michigan that I knew that if I needed to call somebody or I felt, you know, alone, that there was always, you know, maybe camp to go to or someone to go to. And that's definitely something that uh, I am very blessed that I had. You know, I, I went away to Southwest Texas State University after graduating high school and I dropped out. My, my parents had died young. I was orphaned young. And when I got to college, I just, I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the emotional skills. I didn't have the social skills. I was alone. I was afraid. I just couldn't, I couldn't cope. And so I, hearing you say that you had all that support, it's, it's invigorating. And yeah. what a testament, not only to that gentleman at Michigan State, but to even though your mother was hurt, yeah, you're, I'm sure she still supported you and your father was oh, able yeah. to support you. Were they able to come to your college graduation? Yeah, my, my mother was. Unfortunately, my dad wasn't. Um, my dad actually passed away a week before my, my sister's graduation. So um, not even a week. It was like three, four days before. So um, unfortunately he wasn't, but I know, you know, I believe in a, in a, in a higher being and I feel like he, he's seen us right. And, and see us be where we're at today, but my mother was, and um, it's, it's something that even to this day, she, she, you know, gets very emotional about because um, it's not easy. And, and Mark, like everything that you just shared, like, thank you for sharing that. Like I felt that way too. But like I said, I think, you know, I was very fortunate enough to, you know, even just have my twin sister, like 
who, who gets that, you know, who gets to go to college with a sibling, you know, right at the hip, you know, like to be able to experience that. Like, I, I don't think I would have had the same experience if it wasn't for that. And, um, you mentioned like Luis Garcia and even his team, right? Because each and every one of them, I mean, that's what they strive for every day, you know, and that's what they're fighting for too, as far as inclusion and diversity at the university. And it's, it's so much better now, but they're, you know, you know, continue to advocate for, you know, how do we could in increase that retention rate when it comes to our Hispanic Latino community as a whole, not just for our migrant farm worker, um, background as far as camp and children, like I think just overall, like he, they're they're a huge advocate for it, and I've seen more universities jump into that as well, which is is um, pretty heartwarming, right? Because that's where you know that they're going to have that true student success. Now, is your sister, your twin sister, is identical twin. Yes, but she, yeah, I live in Texas and she lives in New Jersey. What? She liked the East Coast, huh? Yeah, she's traveled. I'm telling you, she's always been the, you know, people don't believe me, but she's always been the extrovert. Uh, she's uh, lived in a lot of different states to really pursue her her passion and her uh, purpose in, in the, you know, the textile and fashion industry. She She's always um, wanted to work in that industry and still does. Uh, you don't know this, but I'm an identical twin as well. Oh, what? <laughs> That's and, insane. I didn't know that, Mark. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and I didn't realize until you said that, that when I went away to college, our our relationship, and we just, we went two different directions at that time. And I, that was also, I believe, a contributing factor to some of my struggles because, you know, he, just, he was just gone. Like everyone else in my <laughs> life was just gone. And it was just, it was a lot to deal with to go away and not have support not having anyone to call, not who, knowing who to talk to. And you know as well as I do that all the influences at college are not necessarily good influences. And I just I just didn't have the skill to uh, contend with it at, at, at 18, you know, just wasn't ready. But I just, I guess I'm just reliving that moment with you because it's so important. You have all these amazing achievements. You have all these amazing academic achievements and you have worked hard yeah. these things did not come to you no one no one handed you your degrees you labored intensely for every one of them this series is titled women in leadership and it's important that the young women that want to go to school one day that want to go to college one day or they could be in school right now need to understand they need to reach out if they have questions they need to reach out to someone if they need help they need to reach out to someone if they're feeling afraid or lost because there are people and organizations there to help them yes yes there is and i think i think that was the biggest learning for me right because you know even when i saw other students in my classes that were successful I knew, Mark, that the only way that I was going to be successful was that I surrounded my with people that had the same vision and goals as I did. Like, I, I learned that early on. Like, I mean, it wasn't easy. Like, I'm telling you, like, I mean, you said it right on it. Like, as far as like the skill set, you know, I, I didn't know how to study. I didn't know, you know, 
like simple time management, you know, financial literacy, you know, like how to, you know, be able to work and still go to school, you know, and, and have money to, you know, and we lived in the dorms, but still, I mean, you still have those extra expenses that you just don't think about, right. Of going to college and, you know, do you call mom or dad to like, you know, and, and, you know, again, we come from humble beginnings. So I, you know, we knew that we had to do our part too. And so I think there was a lot of learnings, but I think, you know, aside from mentorship, and, you know, having, you know, that support system, even just being able to seek out like and understand the resources that were available, like how can I be successful um, and mirror the person that's right next, sitting down next to me in my classroom, right? Like, how is she successful? Why, how, what is she doing differently that I can learn from? Um, and it was, it was hard, it was, you know, I had to be very vulnerable, right? Because I was like, you know, I had to ask for help and that doesn't come easy, you know, um, especially, you know, going to a stranger and being like, hey, can I study with you, right? Because, you know, um, whatever, you know, you may be feeling, or I know I felt ashamed, you know, like, I'm like, I should know this stuff, like I should, but obviously I, you know, it, it didn't come easy. So when I did that, right, when I kind of stepped out of that comfort level and started, you know, networking with classmates and studying with them, then that's when I started to see, you know, the results that I wanted in my grades. Um, you know, cause before that I was like below average, you know, and when I started hanging out with them and just learning the system, because it is a system, it's mm -hmm. a system that's designed for a certain population, you know? And so, um, I had to learn to navigate through it. And the best way to do it is lean on other people, <laughs> figure it out. Well, I think this component of our conversation is critical to this series, Women in Leadership, because yeah, you have, we're gonna talk about some other things, but this is really the heart of your leadership development. This is really the heart of who, <clears throat> excuse me, who you are, where you came from, having to navigate in this this brand new world and as you said it is a system and you said i had to learn to take up my space and accept that i belonged here and that didn't happen overnight it was through these experiences you're talking about right now that showed you i this is i belong in this space and i'm relevant and i can do this it's not beyond me yeah, and it's an everyday, it's an everyday component, even today, Mark, that mm -hmm. I embrace. I think we all, we all can learn from that, you know, just continue to be, continue to be better and just really serve it, serve, you know, our purpose. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would agree. Now, I'm looking at your bio, your bio again. Let's talk a little bit about your master's in public health with an emphasis in nutrition and migrant health. I'm here, I live here in the Pacific Northwest. And so that's Oregon and, you know, Washington, Montana, California. The migrant community here is relatively different than it is in different states. And so the, the majority of the, the migrant community here work 80% of the 80, 85% of the, the, gro the gross domestic product of Oregon is agriculture. 
So there are those that are involved here in smaller um, measurements around migrant health. Why is nutrition and migrant health important within the ecosystem of a community and health of the community? Yeah, so I, I really, really got, you know, into that work because um, I actually, obviously coming from migrant farm worker background, I, I always had, you know, a purpose to kind of give back to my community, right, and, and really found that that was a part of me. Um, but aside from that, what I recognized that while, you know, they work tirelessly every single day and putting food in our table, I recognized that they also were limited to a lot of resources when it came to healthcare. And so, and I experienced that, you know, upfront uh, early on in my college um, kind of experience. I actually interned for a community migrant farm worker clinic in uh, Northern Michigan. Um, I was living in East Lansing, so that's more in the center of the state. And so I actually traveled about three and a half hours north um, in this like um, very tourist attraction. It's called Traverse City area. It's a beautiful place, but hidden, right? We had these migrant farm worker camps. And so I actually worked in this clinic and I saw up front, right? Like all these disparities that were happening, right? Like access to healthcare. And the, the ironic thing, Mark, was that a lot of these families were coming from Texas, from the Valley. They were coming from the Valley, from Florida, primarily, um, and then some other states, but those were the two main areas that these families were coming from. And I saw that there was an opportunity because, you know, again, I, I felt more of like that, you know, opportunity to voice and, and have an impact on their health through advocate, advocating, you know, these, these essential things that they needed, right? I'm like, how, how is it possible that you know, they're putting food on our table and they can't afford, you know, health to go to a clinic, right? Or to feed their families, to put it that way. Um, and so for me, it was like, okay, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And so I, early on, I started um, through this clinic doing like an outreach program. So we did like a needs assessment so that we could be able to get grant money to have some additional resources at this clinic. And we were actually pretty successful for a while. I did that for about four years. Every summer I was coming back for um, at least um, two months, two and a half months to provide this service to these families. Um, unfortunately, after I graduated, it, it kind of, the program dissolved. I think it had a lot to do with funding. Um, but you ask as far as like, you know, my interest, you know, why it's important, well, they're a large contributor of our economy. You know, they, till this day, that population is picking our food, you know, harvesting, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, the right thing to do is continue to provide resources to, um, you know, their way of living and their quality of life. Well, no, I would agree with you. We expect the migrant community to show up, work hard, don't need anything, don't ask for anything, don't expect anything, and then quietly slip away into the night and we'll, we'll call you when we need you, so to speak. Very inhumane, very unkind, uh, very selfish, uh, uh, we can, how we can be as Americans at times. I wanna hear a little bit about the two 
articles on migrant health that you co-authored? Yeah, so, and I think it, it kind of stemmed from some of that work, Mark. So I had, you know, I was very fortunate enough to have met a great mentor. And I apologize, the little one running around here. Um, a mentor, uh, Dr. Wong Song, um, early in my uh, graduate school, um, I met her and she was a really great mentor of mine. I shared with her my interest of being able to give back to our migrant farm worker community. And she just really believed in my work and in my passion. And she said, let's make this happen. Like, let's find a way to give back to these families, right? Um, so we actually partnered with Telemann. That's the one that, that you read off in the beginning, you know, Telemann was instrumental in, uh, for us to be able to connect with these families. Um, Telemann is like a head start for migrant farm worker children. So it's like early head start, right? Um, to be able to provide that education. I'm sorry, there's a little one. It's okay. Um, um, and so it was something that, you know, to this day is something that, I'm so sorry, hold up. I, I, sorry, Mark, he's just okay. upset. Um, yeah, he was asleep. <laughs> you know how it is. Um, and so I think that for me, it was like connecting with Telemann and finding a way for us to be able to give back. And um, we started doing that needs assessment. We found a lot of alarming health um, challenges, whether it was food access, these children from the nutritional standpoint, these children were experiencing more obesity in comparison to your general population as far as pediatrics. We also saw things like high blood pressure uh, happening early on as far as onset. And then also um, AN or what we know as acanthosis nigricans, which is like um, sensitivity to insulin where, you know, some people may argue, but some people use it as an indicator for diabetes later on in life. And so we were seeing some of those um, struggles early on in these children at these migrant heart head start centers. So we, you know, I partnered with Dr. Wong Song and we co-authored uh, those two articles. Um, there, it, you know, it, it takes a team. And so there was a few of us that really, uh, took on this work, um, me more so on the project management side, getting interns, really, um, laying out the foundation, the framework of this work. And then we had some really great experts that really helped, um, you know, from like the statistical standpoint and then just like, you know, the literature review and whatnot. So it was definitely a team effort. I was still in graduate school, so I was still learning a lot. And how was that, the information, those um, articles that on the migrant health that you helped co-author, how were they received into the community that you were working in at that time? For us, it was, it, honestly, I think, you know, it turned a lot of people's heads. I think it was alarming to a lot of people just because, you know, you mentioned it earlier. Sometimes what we don't know, we don't know, right? Like, I think that... Um, if it doesn't impact us, we may not always think about it. I guess that's the most kindest way to say it, right? Um, and so us to being able to just to voice some of those concerns. I mean, Telemann has done this work day in, day out, but where they could really be able to provide these findings out in the community, right? Have these measurable metrics that they can share out. It uh, started to allocate more resources into some of these foundations, right? Like how do we... Um, you know, reorganize some of these budgets, whether it's, a, you know, a state level or, you know, county level to be able to address some of these health issues that are happening right in our communities. Your doctorate is in, in philosophy, organizational leadership studies. 
What does that mean, organizational leadership studies? Yeah, so I had the privilege of um, attending um, Our Lady of the Lake University. It's an extension program, or it's a satellite program here in the Rio Grande Valley, Valley in La Feria. Um, I I always knew that I wanted to pursue my you know higher education. Like I early, remember, I mentioned earlier, early on, it was always something that I aspired. I knew that one day I would that would happen. I didn't know when, but then I found out about this really great program. This program specifically attracted me because of just the impact that leaders have in our communities, um, whether it's through, um, you know, government, whether it's through, you know, corporations, nonprofits. And so I saw the opportunity that lied around just, you know, how can not only I be a good leader, right, but how do I continue to provide some of these skill sets, some of this, this philosophy, these theories to um, even some of the organizations that I'm a part of. And, you know, that's really stemmed my interest. Again, it was more of a personal goal. So I pursued my PhD. Uh, fortunately, I had some really great um, mentors. Dr. Nohosa is one of them. Uh, really great professors that really helped us be successful because that too, I didn't know how what it was to do a PhD. I didn't know what it took. I didn't know, you know, if, you know, how long it was going to take. And then I was still working full time. Um, so it was a lot of weekends. Um, and they, they were so compassionate, you know, um, along the way, but my research was actually in uh, food and nutrition health professionals and really looking at authentic leadership in relation to voice behavior. And you're probably like, what is that? Well, I had a huge interest in as far as like obesity in our community, but more so like where, where do dietitians show up, um, including myself, right? When it comes to public policy, when it comes to advocating for, you know, access to nutrition services, uh, you know, where does the dietitian sit as far as like sitting at the table? Um, and so all of these questions started to arise and, and that really is what formulated my interest in my, in my dissertation. Um, obviously, you know, it's a subset, you know, I had about what, 220, 274 participants participate in my study. Um, and it was just looking at that, like the relationship between authentic leadership and voice behavior. And what, what I found was that like people that, um, exemplified one of the constructs of authentic leadership, um, had more voice behavior, meaning that they were, had the ability to speak up, share ideas. And so that's definitely something that, um, I now help communicate to my uh, fellow peers and colleagues, because I think that that is definitely, you know, a type of leadership that could really help, you know, us be more, um, you know, have a place and be able to speak up in certain some of these critical issues that affect our profession and also the, the communities that we serve. That is so intriguing. I could probably listen to you talk about that for the next 60 minutes. I'm, I'm serious. I just was. And I love to talk, Mark. I don't know if you've already noticed that. No, it's good. I was completely captivated by the subject matter. And uh, it's, it's, requ it's, a, it's required to be effective, to bring about change, to bring about cultural shift and cultural change and to, to bring people along with those ideas as well as those responsibilities uh, you, you've got your education for a reason. You've got multiple degrees for a reason. You've got multiple hours of service and volunteering for a reason. And if you don't 
employ your voice capacity to give it sound and purpose and reason, then what did you do it for? Exactly. Right? Now, <clears throat> in 2018 and 2019, you complete, or in 2019, you completed a certificate in business analytics for Michigan State University. Why was that necessary? What were you trying to add to your educational <laughs> achievement? Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned it in my bio, but I am a student at heart. Like I, I know that there's opportunities to grow and, and, you know, I think it has a lot to do with my upbringings too. Um, you know, my, my father believed a lot in education, but he always instilled in me early on that, you know, sometimes we would be required to work twice as hard. And so um, that's definitely something that was instilled in me early on. And sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, Andy, like you work so hard. And, you know, and, and honestly, you know, it's because of those upbringings, you understand? Like I, I'm, I'm very resilient, you know? I mean, obviously it hasn't been a perfect path. I followed a lot of non-traditional paths, um, even through my, you know, you know, one thing that I didn't share, Mark, was that like, in a traditional path, you do your four, your your forty year degree, right? Like your bachelor's of science in dietetics, and then you go into an internship program. Well, I personally didn't have financially the opportunity to go an internship program because you have to pay for your internship. So I actually went into graduate school first, saved money, applied for scholarships, and then moved into an internship program. So even as a dietitian, I, I started my career a little bit later as a dietitian because of some of those barriers, right? I, I didn't. I, you know, for those type of internship programs, they didn't have loans. Um, so I really had to have money upfront to be able to pay for that. And so I had to just, you know, reroute and go a different path. And so I share that because, you know, it, it wasn't quite easy, um, but, you know, with my business and analytics, the reason that I chose to do that was because I, I know as I continue to grow in my career, in you know in in you know the path that i want to choose data is a huge component of that as far as like understanding how big data um you know how we use um data to make our everyday decisions whether it's a corporation a business a program you know um all of that it, it kind of goes hand in hand and so that's why i chose uh, michigan state university has a lot of great programs and i chose that specific program but i can tell you that I'll continue to to learn. I, I still, it was just like, I felt like I was just like scratching the surface on that. Um, but it was just like an introductory course of really understanding how data really um, helps drive decisions um, in programs. Well, that's why they have marketing firms, right? Because it works. They know how to capture the mind, to capture the attention, what people are looking for. And if they don't know they're looking for it, we'll just put that subliminal message out there to them. And uh <laughs> And then they'll then they'll want it. I, I I really appreciate that that you have that desire to understand your work in a way that's more deep, uh, measurable, even more rich because that gives you a greater insight to the psychology of what you're doing, right? Yes, it does. It really does. And how people make decisions, you know, like how they utilize data. You know, oftentimes, you know, businesses. You mentioned like I mean, even analysts, right? Like that's a big upcoming. Uh, field and you know they're just pulling data you know from like whether it's like customer experience or even if you have your own business you know just really understanding your customer and you know how you can do things better you know I think 
that really fascinates me. The research side really, really fascinates me. And, and like I said, I don't think, I think my journey, you know, continues. Um, I don't know where that end point will be, <laughs> but, um, you know, definitely, you know, I, I want to continue to make an impact and just really uh, be instrumental to my purpose when it comes to health and advocating. Um, and hopefully I get to do it here in the Rio Grande Valley, continue to do it here because I, I really do see a need. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, you're, she currently is training as a certified specialist in obesity and weight management. What exactly, we hear about obesity and weight, weight, weight management all the time. What exactly does that mean when you're working in the field? How are you combining those to increase health awareness? I'm not talking about, well, this much from the vegetable group and this much from the fruit group. And what yeah. are some of the other more, uh, the depth of, of those components in that, in that field of study, in that field of work? Yeah, so, you know, my interest, especially with the specialization, is that science con science continues to change and evolve, and we continue to learn more around this disease state, because it is a disease, like obesity, you know, it, it's, it's something that's genetic, you know, often, you know, oftentimes, you know, um, it can be contributed to um, the food that we're eating, but there is that genetic factor, and that's what really you know, really inspired me to really pursue this specialization. I'm still in the progress of it. Um, I actually had started it last year, Mark, but because of COVID and some of the redirection of, you know, just the emphasis of the pandemic and, you know, I kind of put it on hold and now I started to, to, you know, get back into just studying and hopefully in the next couple of months, I'll be sitting in for that exam, but just really understanding the physiological piece of what obesity does in our body. And I think that that's a really important piece as well, because, um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, genetic factors that we have to think about, um, whether, whether it's like hormones, whether it's just, you know, the way that our body responds to certain foods. And so all those key components is really important as we address this, you know, disease, right, of obesity within our community. Um, and so that's, that's really what inspired me. Um, I have a lot to learn still, um, because like you said, it's not just, you know, a number on the scale. There's yes. so much more to that. Yeah, it's definitely not just a number on the scale. That's for sure. I want to, let's pivot a little bit. I could just, man, I could talk to you all afternoon, Dr. Gonzalez. I know. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your current career with HEB, the Nutrition Services. I was reading, as I said earlier, before we started recording, that I have been was reading Dare to Lead with Dr. Brene Brown earlier today. And she talked about organizations, you know, she talks about in, in Dare to Lead regarding where the most depressed, in debt, obese generation in American history. Okay. And they are trying, they are doing some work with tracking businesses that are addressing these health concerns for their employees the impact that those services that employers are offering to their employees is having on their families and thus the communities. And I didn't really put that together. It made me immediately think of this portion of your bio when I read that today and I thought, that's exactly what she's doing for HEB. Yeah. You are creating such an internal HEB's emphasis 
with your education and your background is to create this dynamic cultural shift organizationally that uh, transcends just the organization to the extended, the family, and then to the community. Let's talk about some of that philosophical uh, work of HEB. And thank you, Mark, for just sharing that. <laughs> it makes me a little emotional um, because that is is definitely something that you know that really drives me every day um, to be able to do. I, I don't see it that way completely, like you just shared. I see it more of just really serving my purpose. But you know, I feel very fortunate that when this program started seven years ago, I had the opportunity to really be a um, pioneer in this field of retail dietetics or a retail dietitian, or, you know, coming into a very non-traditional space into a supermarket, right. And really be able to, to guide and coach uh, families that were walking into our stores to shop better, eat better. And so um, it was, it was like a startup, you know, we really didn't know how to navigate. We had really great leadership. I mean, you've heard of HEB and, and the culture and, and, you know, what it does for its community, but to really be a, a part of that is something that is um, something very meaningful to me. And, um, you know, this program, as I shared, started seven years ago with that social responsibility of really helping Texans get healthier. And through that, you know, one component is through our nutrition program, right? Having 50 plus dietitians across the state. I, you know, started as an in-store dietitian, providing that education, that food literacy, that nutrition literacy for about four and a half years, uh, specifically here to the Rio Grande Valley and Laredo. Um, we started and, and we, we did a lot of that work too that you just shared, you know, um, we first started with our employees helping our, you know, I used to have, you know, 50 plus partners, you know, in a class learning about, you know, how to eat better, right? Or how to, you know, read a food label or, you know, how to make a better for you tamal, you know, just, you know, really that experience to be able to um, take care of, of, of our HEB partners. And then, you know, as our program has grown, um, you know, within the last three years, now I sit as a sales rep. So I help support this specific uh, region, the Rio Grande Valley, and then also um, Laredo on the Gulf Coast. And through my work, I always say that I, I'm really, you know, that bridge with some of these other uh, organizations and partnerships in our community, um, more so on the service piece, on the service side, uh, not so much on the community side, that's going to be more public relations, but I am more so on, on these entities, really understanding the impact of, of nutrition and health. Um, whether it's employers, medical providers. So I'm like, you know, visiting doctor's offices, letting them know like, hey, how can we work together? Um, and just really around the role of the dietitian, but then also, you know, how do we create these new spaces of health in a supermarket? Um, we know today that 70 to 80% of food choices are done in the supermarket when it comes to, you know, how people are shopping. And so how do we continue to, help families uh, find better, you know, for you options as they're shopping. And so, you know, again, HEB is very innovative. It's a wonderful company. And I'm always going to be very grateful for that recruiter that called me when I was in Michigan that shared with me that I had an last interview and I drove in my U-Haul with my family. We packed all our stuff. We drove down to San Antonio in our U-Haul so I could have my last interview. And that's something that is um, 
you know, again, you know, something that I, I cherish very close in my heart because um, HB has been really good to me when it comes to just being able to do some of this work. When I mentioned uh, the dare to lead with Brene Brown, when I share the, the, the end result, that was what they drew from the data. That's what they discovered from the data that the organizations that were helping create, uh, give, helping employees become healthier, the end result the data showed was their families got healthier, their spheres of influence got healthier, and the communities were getting healthier. And so I can see the work that you're doing with HEB having that same cu cumulative effect and um, mul the multiplication process it might not happen all this year or next year, but it can definitely have that kind of impact down the down the line. You said uh, no, for sure. Yeah, you said something important, Dr. Gonzalez. I think we take a lot for granted, and one of those things is people do not everyone knows how to read a food label. I think that's something that is really critical to teach people how to do is to read a food label. And even when you said that, it shocked me for a minute. I thought to myself, who doesn't know how to read a food label? A lot of people don't know how to read a food label. So how do you guys, um, in the work that you do, you also said how to make the food we eat better, right? How to change yeah. some of the ingredients. Talk to us a little bit about your work and how that's facilitated. Uh, is it just in the classroom? Yeah, so I think it, 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 you know, we provide that education in a couple of different components or different ways. One of them is that one-on-one -on -one counseling that we do in our stores uh, to be able to provide, you know, identify, you know, meal patterns. Like if a family is, you know, we recognize that they are, you know, love, I, I don't know, you know, maybe, you know, tacos every Tuesday, right? That we find a better way maybe they don't fry their tortillas right and maybe they just use a you know corn tortilla right without frying maybe they bake it the same goes with the cut of meat you know we, we're just trying to find ways to just um i always say make it more nutrient dense right like okay you know we cut back some of the fat and that means that it's more wholesome it has more protein right and so you know you start to really um add more uh, nutrition back into our meals and, you know, but still keeping that cultural component. Um, I think that that's really important. I always joke around, but I always say that my husband, you know, while I'm a dietitian, my husband does not a fan of all vegetables. And so, you know, whenever I ask, you know, like, what is the vegetable that you eat? And I always tell him like, don't include pico de gallo or salsa, you know, because traditionally that's the way that he gets his vegetables. So I'm always making sure that there's pico de gallo, that there's salsa, because at least I know that there's some components in there that he's getting right. And so even something as simple as that, like celebrating some of those things that are part of our culture that are positive, uh, you know, avocado, right? It, it's such a great component in our culture, salsas, right? I, I mentioned that jokingly, but it's true. You know, it's that's tomato, that's onion, that's cilantro. You know, there's a lot of benefits to that. There's, you know, some people put garlic in a lot of their, their, their food. So those are things that we can continue to celebrate but I think that there is some opportunity when it comes to like frying foods, the cuts of meat that we're eating, the frequency, the portion. And so we teach that 
through those one-on-one -on -one engagements, uh, group settings, uh, also cooking demonstrations. So we work with a lot of employers that will, you know, uh, have us come in and do some of this education. So I think there's a couple of different ways, but for the most part, I would say where we have the, the biggest impact is that on that one-on-one -on -one engagement. Well, thank you for sharing the component about the salsa and the pico de gallo and the guacamole, because those, those are vegetables and they do, there is a combination and those are things that uh, we should keep it, keep in the diet. Now, you in your in your bio as a sales representative, she helps build on HEB's nutrition service offerings, maintains relationships with physicians, healthcare providers, and employers, and serves as a spokesperson for nutrition and nutrition education and health and wellness for the border and Gulf Coast region of South Texas. This is a big area. This is a, a large scale, almost like a large scale military operation. Yeah. Because you have incorporated beyond education, physicians, healthcare providers, and employers within nutrition education, health and wellness for the entire border and Gulf Coast region in South Texas. There is that large cumulative cultural impact that you're having, HEB is having, Talk to us a little bit about why it's important to have that all those resources working in unison. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the way that I see it is a collective effort when it comes to just, you know, different touch points of our everyday living, right? So when you think about employers, for example, you know, an employer has a huge part in their employee's life. I always say that they, you know, half of your time you spend it at work, you know? <laughs> even more so sometimes in your family. And so I think that there's that social responsibility for the employer to uh, provide additional resources to help keep their employees healthy. Um, I mentioned medical providers as well, because it's a collective effort. Medical providers are a stakeholder when it comes to health. They hold such a high influence in how our community um, even takes charge of their health. Um, you know, I mentioned my grandmother earlier, right? But bless her heart. But if her her doctor didn't say it, it didn't mean anything, you know? And and that's pretty powerful. Like that shows, you know, the influence, the impact, you know, the the gift that they have to really be able to change some of these these um, barriers, right? That that happen in healthcare. And so my goal, right, as I'm out, you know communicating with them, talking with them, chatting with them, you know, building these relationships is that they not only understand, right, the role of the dietitian, but also the impact that they have, right? Like we're coming to you, like, let's work together. You know, how can we help your patients, you know, uh, reduce the risk of diabetes? Like, how do we continue to work together to really uh, have an impact in our overall quality of life in our communities? And you know, most doctors are very receptive, you know, they don't oftentimes have nutrition as part of their curriculum or core curriculum, at, you know, through their residency, they might have just like one class, and it's not even a class, it's like one session that they have. And so I think that there's like this collaborative approach or this interdisciplinary care team that, you know, we're really trying to create like a holistic approach to health and, um, through these, as I mentioned, it's just a, a collective effort, right? Through the employers, through the medical providers, um, and even community stakeholders. 
um, I think that, you know, when we think about community stakeholders, you know, we, we tap into a lot of different spaces to make sure that, you know, um, our patients that are being referred, like how do we increase access to nutrition? How do we continue to support their efforts when it comes to, um, you know, supporting some of their wellness goals? Now you have some amazing things listed for spare time, and this is important for leaders, especially women in leadership, yeah. that you can still have a full, successful professional endeavor and professional pursuits and still have time for passions. Uh, her joy, you say your joy is spending time with your husband, your daughter and son, and extended families. Hobbies include spending time outdoors and helping your daughter with her FFA. Uh, Future Farmers of America Animals, and I forget, what does 4-H stand for? Yeah, it's 4-H, is, is, it's like FFA, right. it's uh, horticulture. Yeah, it's it's basically um, the opportunity to, to uh, in agriculture. And 4-H projects. So you have a lot of wonderful things going on. <clears throat> you value family, you value hard work, you, you value serving others, and in, within this context of the conversation of women in leadership, what we got about 15, 17 minutes left. We didn't get to any of the questions I said. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, no. This is, this is the beauty of these interviews. This is what I like doing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about why it's important as a woman, a woman in leadership, a highly educated, accomplished woman, why it's important to make sure you're taking time out for those that you love and other hobbies and interests. And it's, it's, it's definitely something that's super important to me. And, you know, once, and I think it's like a quote, right? Like you make time for the things that are important. And I really, am I perfect? No. Um, you know, but I really do, you know, time is precious you know, the way that you spend your everyday, you know, minutes, you know, like right now, as soon as we get off, we're going to the barn <laughs> and I, and I take my daughter and we're out in the barn for at least an hour, an hour and a half. And I really use that time, you know, to be out. I love being on the outdoors. I love F the FFA program. I mentioned earlier, I have a huge passion for uh, our agriculture, food systems, and just a really huge advocate for these programs for, for kids. And so for me, I'm out there not just doing that, but I'm spending quality time with my my daughter and my son. Um, and then, you know, aside from that, you know, um, making sure that I stay healthy, right? Like if you can't help others, if you're not in a good mindset, if you're not, you know, taking care of yourself, I know it's easier said than done. And I remember, at, you know, when I first started in my career with HEB, I was like, go, 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 go. And I didn't stop very much, but, um, through the years, I've learned that there has to be balance and there really has to be a time to really um, pay attention to your own self-care or self-love and then also uh, those around you. Um, I mentioned earlier that, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I, my eyes, I have, I've had allergies all day today, is that, you know, my kids are very important to me. My family is very important to me, my mom, my, my, my extended family, and always just making time for them. Um, because I was in school for a long time, you know, and so I think, you know, now is the time to be able to just reconnect with them, stay true to my culture, stay true to my, my values, and just really, um, you know, live those, those, those values, like I say, I, I, I do, right. And so I think it's just really living up to those things. 
this is such a big area. I think that women have a unique pressure upon them, a professional pressure upon them to be the highest possible achiever conceivable without sacrificing any of these other areas. Yeah. Relationship, family, cooking dinner, you know, all of these things, uh, these other areas you mentioned. What would you say, Dr. Gonzalez, to young women who are breaking into the workforce and trying to figure out how do I maintain my value system as well as be successful? I think the biggest thing is creating a support system. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, you can't do it alone, um, especially because of those expectations. I think until we continue to break some of those uh, barriers, right, when it comes to just the role of the female, I mean, uh, you know, has it been easy? No, you know, because at the other end of the day, you still have those motherly instincts, right? Those those values that you grew up with, right? As as and and I see it, right? I mean, um, with my kids, you know. But I always, you know, keep it straight. My my two year old doesn't fully understand, but my even my daughter, like, you know, every decision that I take, whether if I'm traveling, if I'm out of town, if I'm, you know, at a meeting or whatnot, I always try to be there in those those, those moments that are important, right? So I will never miss a you know a competition, you know, whether it's FFA, you know, project. If it, she's going to try out for cheer, I need to be there, and nothing else matters. And I think. It's just setting those boundaries. Um, it hasn't been easy, but I think that, you know, just again, you know, you're not always going to be there for every single moment, but just picking the important ones. And then the other thing is, is building a good support system. I couldn't do it without my tribe, my, 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 my group of people, my, you know, people that I love, my family, my husband, my mother. I couldn't do it without each and every one of them um, through school, you know, and just shared roles. Um, my husband, we're a team. And that's something early on. We've known each other for a long time. <laughs> we were, you know, through high school and, and even through college. Like um, he knew that that we were going to be in this, you know, side by side together. And so um, we really helped lift each other up. And um, I can truly say that he has been very instrumental to my success and allowing me to do the things that I, you know, um, have purpose to do and serving others um, and still being able to uh, keep those components that I shared, right? Like making sure that I continue to stay grounded, um, family focused um, and paying attention to my kids, you know, and spending that quality time. You mentioned earlier when you were getting your master's, I've been thinking about this, even as these conversations have gone on, that you didn't really have the money to do some of the other things that you wanted to do. So you had to be a little unconventional to get to the end result. What would you say to young women, young ladies trying to get an education and trying not to completely overwhelm themselves with debt and try to trying to find a way to accomplish their end result or to get to their goal, what would you say to them about being thoughtful, about being creative and not rushing? Yeah, I think um, understanding your resources. So 
I, you know, I mentioned graduate school because I actually, you know, got accepted. I applied into a graduate assistantship program so that I could get paid and I could save money. Um, so they actually were paying me to go to graduate school. And I didn't even know that existed until like I started looking like, okay, what is going to be my next step? I was, you know, you know, was I worried? Yes, because my end result, I wanted to become a dietitian, but I was going to have to wait two years. My classmates were going to graduate way earlier than I was because, you know, they financially had the support system to really, you know, be able to write a checkout for $11,000. I didn't. And so um, I knew that I had to just take a different route. So, so those upcoming women, what I would share would be, you know, look for resources, look for scholarships. I know it sounds so repetitive at times, but honestly, that's what helped me. Um, I applied for the Congressional Hispanic uh, Institute, Caucus Institute, CHCI. They had a, a scholarship. I applied for it. You know, that was $4,000 that I saved you know, through my graduate assistantship, I saved extra money. And then I was just like constantly looking for scholarships, constantly, constantly, constantly. And then the other thing I, I would say, and you said it perfectly is sometimes it might take us longer, but it's worth the journey. Um, and so I know that that's really hard to digest sometimes, right? Because remember I said, you know, I, I started a little bit, I started two years later in my career and my fellow colleagues, did it hurt? Yeah, it did, right? But the silver lining was that I had a master's and they didn't, you know? And so I think that at that point, did I see it that way? No, I was seeing it like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I wish, you know, I had more money, right? To be able just to, you know, pay these this money up front, right? Um, but I think that, you know, forward is forward. Um, if you have to take a couple of different turns, it's still forward. And so I think that that mentality also is, is super critical as we think through some of the systemic factors that might contribute to our end success, like whatever that end goal is, um, because, you know, it's, it's not a straight line all the time. And I think that's really important. Um, and I, that's something that I had to learn early on. Um, when I was in college, I was like, wait, it's a paid internship. I have to pay for this. I didn't understand it. I was like, then why did I choose to go this route? Like I was so confused. I didn't know, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I had to kind of just find another way, but you know, the beautiful thing about our community is that we are resilient mm -hmm. and we're hardworking and, you know, we're compassionate people. And I have every faith that, you know, we'll find a way. And I think that should be the mentality, like, you know, keep that grit, that resilience, keep moving forward, you know, and if you need a mentor, if you need help, reach out to people. There's people that have been there, done that, you know, now with, with LinkedIn, social media, I'm sure you can connect with somebody, you know, in the United States as, you know, can, can guide you and coach you and maybe find you offer some guidance and some coaching. And in closing, just in regards to the, the aspect of leadership itself, what would you like to say to leaders regarding not only their opportunity, but even maybe their responsibility to help facilitate useful change in the communities in which they live? 
I think the biggest component with even just some of the the challenges that we're seeing um, across our nation when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and equity, my feedback was that, or it is that, um, we need to co- we need to uh, continue to create a society that's um, inclusive. Um, continue to embrace each other's differences. As a leader, I think that that's super important. Continue to be open minded. Um, and continue that good fight for for health and equality. I think that's my biggest piece uh, when I think about leadership, just because we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to um, health access and uh, some of the health disparities that we see today. And ultimately, what would you like to, if, if you could talk to your children five years from now, what would you like to say to them? Um... You said it perfectly from Renee Brown. Be brave. Very good. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Dr. Andy Lee Gonzalez, PhD, out of Texas. Yeah. Out of Texas, the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas or the Magic Valley. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, we thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm so glad we finally had the chance to get this coordinated and connect. I'm looking forward to, in the future, maybe having you back, even maybe uh, interviewing your twin sister. Yeah, I, I would love good, that. I think that'd be a great interview to hear her story as well. And then looking, I really would like to have a follow-up conversation with you in a year or so and find out about how some of the, the work that you're doing, uh, some of the impact that it's having, and maybe if you're looking at the metrics, the analytics of it, maybe have a conversation around that as well. No, I would love that, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I'm so humbled. Thank you for, you know, wanting to learn more about me and my journey. I I was really inspired by our chat today. So thank you so much. It's very humbling. Very good. Well, God bless you and your family down there in South Texas. Stay cool. God bless you. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.